Well, we continue this morning in Isaiah. We're in Isaiah chapter 25. And I want to just start with a very cryptic statement here this morning uh, as we look at this. And it's this, if it hasn't happened to you yet in life, at some point, the light will come on and you'll come to realize that one day the lights will go out. Right? If you haven't realized it yet in life to this point, at some point in your life, uh, the light will come on where you'll recognize and realize that one day the lights will go out. And if that's too cryptic, let me say it this way. One day we all die. I'm sorry to be the bearer of bad news. But one day our lives come to a hard stop. And we die. When I was growing up, uh, death was always at a distance. I think this is the way it is for many people. I know for some that's not their story. It's a lot different story for them. But for me, in particular, death was always at a distance. Yeah, I knew about relatives who had died, um, but they were always at a distance. They lived in another state. I wasn't at the funeral or memorial services. I wasn't there when they were declining in health. Um, And so it was was always presented as at a distance. I remember my mom at one occasion had us attend a memorial service and funeral for uh, a person in our, our church. I didn't know her. I knew her, uh, I knew her son, sort of. I was in Sunday school uh, with him. Um, but we attended her, that service. She wanted to expose us to a memorial or a funeral service, and so we went. Uh, but again, at a distance. I, I didn't know her. Um, I was just there seeing people grieving and mourning the loss of a beloved family member and friend, but not someone that I knew. That would all change in the summer of 1995. I uh, had recently finished my sophomore year of college. I was getting ready uh, to head into the summer months, and I went to attend a gathering at a friend's house. It was a youth group friend who was a couple years younger than I was, and he was just graduating from high school. And I remember when I attended that gathering, as I came up to the doorstep, as the door opened, uh, there was my youth pastor standing there. And we greeted one another, and, and then he asked me if I knew the student from Northwest College who had recently drowned in Lake Washington. And I said, well, which student? He said, Jeff Luce. I knew Jeff. Actually, I can go better than that. I'd actually just finished a class project with a group. There was three of us in the group. One of the people in that group was Jeff. It was one of our ministry classes, and entering that summer, I, of course, was looking ahead to two more years of college, Uh, Jeff had just graduated, and he was looking forward uh, to entering into uh, whatever his career might be, whatever his vocation. That was not to be. Death was closer than any one of us had imagined in our young lives. And though the light came on for me that day, the whole thing seems rather unsettling. And even as I look back, it still seems rather unsettling for someone so young. Uh, to prepare for ministry, and then to have their life cut short before they enter into that work. In his book, The Beauty of What Remains, Rabbi Steve Lader shares about his own struggle officiating uh, at the death of a child or a, a young parent, what he calls these deaths that make no sense at all. He writes that at those times, I do what tradition, tec- tradition technically requires of me, but I do not have to like it or force others to confront it fully. Again, death does not always sit well. And perhaps this morning for you, as you're participating here in worship, that death doesn't sit for you well either. 
But if I hear Isaiah at this point in Isaiah 25, I hear Isaiah correctly, that's not the end of the story. Okay, so what is? Well, let's turn our attention to Isaiah 24 for a moment here as we get a run up into Isaiah uh, chapter 25. And, and here in Isaiah 24, we see what you might call an impending future judgment. It's this judgment that's to come upon the earth or come onto all the world. It might seem a little jarring as you read through that chapter for a modern reader. I know as you, you kind of read through that, you think, what? What, what's going on here? This huge apocalyptic type language, this massive destruction. Uh, it seems rather menacing, the God that's pictured there, uh, if we read that from afar. Particularly if I imagine that God is the passive, indifferent sort. And as I read that passage, and I think, how is this even possible? What's going on here? But then we need to step closer to the story. And we recognize that the God that we have revealed in Scripture is not passive or indifferent but rather is far more actively engaged. This is a God who reveals God's self to creation. A God who takes action, and in Jesus Christ is a God who is with us, and not just only for us. And it's clear to this point in Isaiah that God is setting forth uh, a corrective to injustice. Remember way back in chapter 1, talking about all these injustices that are being perpetrated. Well, in chapter 24, God is bringing that corrective, that correction to those injustices. You might say this in another way, that these things that we call evil, these evil deeds, they're not going to go unpunished. We might say that evil and injustice and human indecency, all these things, according to the scriptures, have a shelf life. And so we read that in, again, in Isaiah 24, the Lord is about to lay waste to the earth and make it a desolate, and he will twist its surface and scatter its inhabitants. That's how verse 1 reads. And the earth shall be utterly laid waste and utterly despoiled, verse 3. That is not a pretty picture. But again, it's not completely unexpected because the scene that beckons such a reckoning was far worse. It says uh, again in Isaiah, The earth lies polluted under its inhabitants, for they have transgressed the law, they have violated the statutes, they have broken the everlasting covenant. And then in verse 6, a curse devours the earth and its inhabitants suffer for their guilt. But we do read later on in verse 6 that there is a remnant that survived this judgment. And this remnant lists their voice. They sing for joy and they shout the majesty of the Lord in verse 14. And the prophet goes on to encourage others to join that choir as God ushers in this future where creation will be reclaimed. The Lord of hosts will reign on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, and before his elders he will manifest his glory, is the way it says it in verse 23. That God's reign from all the way back to the beginning in Genesis will once more be established on that day. And that's the future that Isaiah sees, which leads him to sing this in our present text in Isaiah 25. O Lord, you are my God. That's the first part of verse 1. Isaiah locates himself under the authority of God. He goes on to say, I will exalt you. I will praise your name. That's the second part of verse 1. That proximity that Isaiah has to God, it invites him to a response of praise. He says, you have done wonderful things, plans that were formed of old. What God has achieved what God will achieve, these things will not be thwarted. 
that as God moves into that reclamation project, that God has planned this from the beginning, that God will bring justice, that God will bring righteousness, that God will bring order back into creation. And that causes the prophet to celebrate, to, to offer worship and acclamation to God. And so then we see as the text goes on, there's almost like a, a reverse order to the things that Isaiah identifies here about God. About the wonderful things that God has done, look at verse 2. The city of chaos will ultimately be brought to ruin. That city that was spoken of in Isaiah chapter 24. That destructive, that unjust way of living will be gone. And not only will Isaiah exalt and praise God's name, the nations themselves will glorify They'll acknowledge what belongs to God. And they'll fear, they'll approach with reverence uh, God. And what about the one described as my God? The one that Isaiah says is my Lord, my God? That God is a refuge to the poor, the needy in their distress, a shelter from the rainstorm, a shade from the heat. These are all categories in verse 4 of chapter 25. And these categories are in contrast to the strong nations. The weak come and find shelter they come and find refuge in that time of crisis and god can be relied upon at that time the tune here that isaiah sings you might call it a new tune it replaces the dominant song of the day it replaces what isaiah describes in verse five as the song of the ruthless and we know in verse five that song is stilled Death's dirge is replaced with God's glories. But a change of tune is not the only future that Isaiah has in view here. The end of Isaiah 24's judgment, we recognize that judgment is not the final word. Instead, Isaiah 25 uh, states here, On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of fine, rich food, of well-aged wines, of rich food filled with marrow, of well-aged wines strained clear. What a contrast. What an incredible contrast that Isaiah paints here for us as we hear in this text to what we heard in chapter 24, verse 7. Wine dries up, the vine languishes, all the merry-hearted sigh. The new tune that Isaiah is singing in chapter 25 is now joined with a new table. And what God has in mind for God's people in this text is not only generous and abundant, it will indeed satisfy. And not merely the appetites of the moment, this is bigger. This is victory over an ache that has plagued every single generation since the garden death itself and not just our own death but the way that death affects every aspect of our lives the deaths of others causing grief and mourning the prospect of death bringing fear into our lives bullies and nations use that to control but here we hear of an ending, a chapter in which that fear is gone. One of the biggest fears for parents, I know not everybody who is participating in worship this morning is a parent, um, 
I, I understand that. But one of the great fears of a parent, according to a 2018 online article, they did a national survey and found that 30% of their respondents said, who were parents, said their biggest parenting fear was that their child would be hurt in an accident. They concluded that certainly this is a valid fear because a few years earlier, unintentional injuries were the leading cause of death among children one to 19. And so it wasn't a make-believe fear, but it's actually one that certainly could be realized. So on March 20th, 1991, this fear was the reality of Eric and Lori, whose four-year-old son, Connor, fell 50 stories to his death from an open window in a New York City condominium. The accident threw Eric into what he called a wobble. He responded by throwing himself into his work as a musician and as a songwriter. It was during that dark season that he co-wrote the song, Tears in Heaven, a song that speaks to the profound grief that Eric Clapton felt in losing his young son, Connor. If you know the song, you know that at one point in the song, there's these words, that beyond the door there's peace, I'm sure, and I know there'll be no more tears in heaven. That future, that future of no more tears is found here in Isaiah chapter 25, verse 8. And not only tears, but death itself being no more. The morning veil, that shroud that covers the nations, that shroud that covers us will be destroyed, as it says in verse 7. That's what's coming. That's what we're waiting for. That's the end of the story. And early Christians, the early Christian writers found inspiration here from this Isaiah text in Isaiah 25. Not only for themselves, but also for the communities that were under their care. They knew death and fear in the first century. And like the people in Isaiah's day, these communities were aching for justice amidst humiliating injustices. But they knew the future, which looked far different than their present circumstances, so much different that they could say in Revelation chapter 19, verse 9, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's the feast that's coming. They could draw inspiration from Revelation 21, verses 3 through 4, that says, See, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them. They will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. That sounds familiar. Death will be no more. That sounds familiar. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more, for the first things have passed away. Their resolve could be strengthened knowing when this perishable body puts on imperishability and this mortal body puts on immortality, then the saying that is written will be fulfilled. Death has been swallowed up in victory. That sounds familiar. The Apostle Paul drawing on Isaiah's words in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 54. Isaiah's prophecy gave a lens for these early Christians so that they could see a larger 
bigger picture. That they could see the final chapter amidst what they faced in their own day. But even more, these writers locate this promise in a person. They located the promise in one whose name is Jesus, the Christ. And that shouldn't surprise us. It shouldn't surprise us one bit. Because Isaiah says as much in verse 9. Lo, this is our God. We have waited for him so that he might save us. This is the Lord for whom we have waited. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Jesus means, the name Jesus literally means Yahweh saves. Yahweh is salvation. The early Christians saw this salvation in Jesus Christ, the one who prepares a place for us that we can go and be with him. I have a confession to make here. You might be a little surprised about eight months into my time here at John Knox that a confession of this sort would be made public, but I know that some of you are familiar with the books Choose Your Own Adventure. Uh, these books, if you're not, basically you would read a page and then it would say at the end of the page, if you want to do this, turn to this page. If you want to do this, turn to this page. Well, here's my confession. I oftentimes would turn to both pages. I know there's some out there like me who might have left that out of your confession this morning. But I'd go back and read both adventures. And I'd try to figure out the one that was more advantageous for me. That the story could go on and could go on. Which brings me to a question for us this morning. If we knew the future, if you knew the future, if you knew what the future held, would it change how you lived right now? Would it change how you live today if you knew what tomorrow held? Of course, a number of writers over the years have dabbled in this arena. From my own childhood, I remember there was a sequel uh, to the book by Mary Rogers, Freaky Friday. It was a billion for Boris. The central character, of course, in there finds a television set that broadcasts the next day's uh, programs and broadcasts, and they quickly discovered that they could find the, the horse racing scores for tomorrow, and they would quickly lay bets on that. I imagine there's some people here on Super Bowl Sunday wish they had that power. But other things like the Back to the Future movies, I know I think the second one was based on the same idea, a sports almanac, having the, the, the games and being able to uh, lay wagers down for that. So this idea of profiting from such knowledge it certainly is a real temptation for us. But if we knew the future, would it change how we live now? Would it change what we did now? If you knew what was coming, would it change how you lived today? Well, like the Choose Your Own Adventures, if you knew what the final page said, would it change the decisions that you make today? Well, amidst news of death's defeat, we might be inclined to just wait it out. We might be inclined just to sit this one out and just wait and see when victory will come. Someday it will come. Not really worrying about today, not managing our lives at all in light of that truth, but instead just sitting it out. It's kind of like knowing that you're going to win the lottery tomorrow and not going to work today. Just saying, you know what, I don't need to work. I've already won the lottery tomorrow. Well, lottery winnings aside, that hardly seems to be any way to live. 
And it certainly does not resemble the kind of life that is affirmed in Isaiah. A life that says how we live now is important. And it speaks to that final chapter. If this was a novel, if I had before you a novel and we knew what that final chapter said, the question here, of course, would be, do the chapters leading to the end, do they tell that same story? And that's the question for us this morning. Does our life tell the story that we see that that final chapter is leading towards? You might be wondering, well, Jimmy, that seems kind of big. How do I live such a way? What could I possibly do that would live into that type of reality? Well, let me give you a simple example here this morning. It's a simple example from a three-year-old. I thought if I could provide an example from a three-year-old, we could all get it. We could all understand it. Sorry, two-year-olds and one-year-olds. But on Friday, I was at the hospital. I was at Valley Medical Center. It was a doctor's appointment uh, for my daughter. And we were on our way into the, that appointment. And as we walked down the, the sidewalk to enter, we were actually holding hands, which if you've ever seen me with my daughter, you would know that was a remarkable thing because she oftentimes wants to just run. <laughs> so we were holding hands, walking down the sidewalk. And as we walked down towards the entrance, there was someone who was coming out, headed towards the parking lot. And I don't know why they were there. They were there by themselves. They probably had an appointment of some kind. But they didn't look particularly happy. There wasn't like they were running around being very joyous and that sort of thing. They're leaving the doctor's office. So I don't know what type of information they received or what type of news or how they're feeling going to that. All I know is that my daughter and I were walking towards them as they were walking towards the parking lot. Well, this person who was walking had their hair dyed purple. They had purple hair. My daughter saw that hair and she turned to me and she said out loud, Daddy, what beautiful purple hair. What beautiful purple hair. And I turned to her and I said, it is pretty, isn't it? And the person stopped. They heard us talking. They stopped. And they said, thank you. But they didn't just say thank you. They said it in a way that you could tell there was a deep impact made by the words of that three-year-old. Friends, that's what it looks like to live now in light of a known future of what God has planned for God's people. We oftentimes forget what it means for us to be a people that love our neighbor and really care for one another. We forget that that's the way we're supposed to be. That's the way we're supposed to live. We're supposed to see beauty and we're supposed to name it. We're supposed to offer words of kindness and acts of kindness that change people's lives. And when we do, we live lives of worship. Instead of abandoning the present so that we could lay claim to what we might imagine the future to be, instead of holding too tightly to the present as though there is no future, we are to live generously now with our words, with our actions, with our talents, and with our resources. We're to be a refuge for those who are in distress and a reminder that this isn't the end. Today is not the end. Death is not the end of the story, but it's rather part of a longer journey to a mountainside feast 
and everyone is invited. May it be our message. May it be what our lives are rooted to. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you on this day for your great love for us. A love that has set before us a chapter that is yet to come, but one that is so beautifully imagined with a great feast. But not just a great feast, but a place of knowing that we have been cared for and that we are held. That even amidst the fear of death, we can know that one day death will be gone and no more. That those tears will be wiped away. That those who mourn will indeed be comforted on that day. Lord, help us to live today in light of that reality. Help us to be a community of grace and friendship. Help us to be a light here in this area that those who see this congregation, that see this people of God, that see John Knox, would see this as a place of refuge and hope as we point everyone to that mountainside feast. We pray this in Christ's name.